I'm Kyler McDaniel from Fangraphs.com, and on the other line, when I was playing Cole McDonald gets some outs, E-I-E-I-O swing, it's Eric Longenhagen. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'll admit that that was, a, that was an Eric original. I just stole it for the intro. Yeah, I mean, it's it's born of Ben Lindbergh's curiosities. It's always fun when someone random, like, on Slack is just like, hey, have you ever heard anything about this guy? And then, like, you dig, and it's like, no, we haven't, but I'm glad that we did now. That feels like, like a, a meme that could live on, like... Cole McDonald. Well, that, yeah, but then also uh, Ben, ben Lindbergh's particular tastes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's a joke from, like, the Fifty Shades of Grey where they show him saying, like, I have very particular taste, and it's, like, him, like, hanging out with the Hamburglar or something. Oh, that's <laughs> right. That's right. So maybe you can do that with that. The, all of, like, the the memes and stuff, like, the, it's interesting to see how, what kind of shelf life they have in culture, because I totally forgot that existed until you mentioned it again. And, and I don't miss two it. Weeks that you saw 53 of these things. <laughs> right. Like the crying, like I haven't seen crying Michael Jordan in a long time and like, I'm fine with it. But there's like been the, uh, the guy looking over his shoulder at, from with one girl looking at the other girl. That one's been around for like two years. Yeah. That one's been around for a long time. Yeah. So, uh, we are back. This is the draft preview episode. Uh, if you were listening to this, you are probably aware that we are in the midst of draft week at the site, uh, which includes lots of content, including, uh, this podcast, which is running one day late, but you know, oh well, um, we're, we're aiming to give this to you guys for something we'll do over the weekend. Cause we're not going to publish anything over the weekend, but we will be working on, um, updated reports and video to go to the board. So if you just sort of check in on that every eight hours, you'll probably see a good bit of new stuff popping up, uh, including some stuff that went up today. And move a couple guys around and filling out some TLDRs and uh, things like that. Uh, but our idea for this uh, podcast was to go through and spend a little bit of time on each thing that we're doing in draft week. And just sort of uh, go through some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Some things you can look for if you're listening to this over the weekend before the draft. Some things you can expect to see. And some of the behind-the-scenes of like how we're doing mock drafts and rankings. And I think some of the conundrums that we've been talking about are sort of interesting decisions that we've discussed in these articles or on these podcasts. And sort of take a lap around that as like a nice sort of primer for what you're going to see on Monday and Tuesday. So the first thing would be the mock draft. Uh, we did 3.0 on early this week on Wednesday. Uh, obviously, you can read through that and get basically all of our thoughts. We're not really uh, holding back much, even though people in both of our chats seem to think that we, we have a bunch of stock in the back that we need to go pull out, all kinds of connections we're not putting out there. Uh, what, what about this mock uh, stands out to you, Eric, in terms of... Specific teams that are tough or, t- or players that are tough to project or sort of trends you're seeing? I guess the, the thing that always worries me is like, okay, where is the where is the domino that if it falls the wrong way that like makes the rest of this wrong? Um, but we know we're going to be wrong. It's just how wrong and in what way. Right. But there's always – like the, early, the first part of the, the draft, those first – you know, depending on how the talent uh, is – shaped at the top of the draft but there's always like a pretty stable tree of like if thens um with those first like in this year's draft half dozen picks and it's like if one of those changes then everything else kind of like topples down um i'm interested in that seven through nine range exactly what Uh, i was going to point out yeah i think the you know the first six picks will probably come off the board. You know, the first six players off the board will probably be, um, you know, Abrams, Rutschman, Witt, Green, Vaughn. Who am I missing? Blade. Um In some order. And then probably, after, we could lay out two or three scenarios. Like, it'll be one of these three orders is, per, is what we're hearing. Um, 
And then after that is when it's like, okay, well, what what does Cincinnati really want to do? You know, is Quinn Priester's name is sort of has seeped into this top sort of uh, area in this in this range, like just ahead of pick ten. Uh, is he an option? Is this the area where teams want to cut a deal with, uh, you know, Texas with Cody Hosey or uh, Atlanta with Cody Hosey or, you know, like this is where things could get sort of strange is that seven to nine area. I will add because I have the game on in the background that Matt Walner just took uh, Eric Tolman very deep to make it 12 to one Southern Miss against Arizona State. Yeah, and I have I have the Southern Mississippi State game on in the other. JT Ginn got hurt. JT Ginn uh, was removed early from the um, Mississippi State game. Yeah, uh, Tolman left a spinner up, and uh, yeah, Walner went real deep. Yeah, uh, the yeah. ASU pitching staff is not deep. They're they're in trouble. They're already in big trouble. You can only lose that game once, though. So twelve to one. <laughs> you can throw in all the extra guys and save some of the arms for later. See how long it can last. Uh, yeah, I agree. We have heard uh, of varying um, for varying lengths of time and with varying intensity that seven, eight, and nine, the Reds, Rangers, and Braves all want to go under slot for basically the same reasons that they see the top tier of the draft as six or maybe seven players, depending on who exactly they think it is, and that they either think they're not going to get access to that tier or they think it's very unlikely they'll get access to that tier. And so, rather than pay retail as though the player they're getting is right at the back of that tier at the beginning of the next tier. They'd rather cut money and then have extra ammunition for their second pick where they can sort of dictate the player they get rather than taking who gets to them. And then right around 10 or 11, it seems like those teams like the Giants and the Blue Jays at 10 and 11 are thinking, all right, well, if things go the way we think they're going to go with the top six going in that order, seven, eight, nine going under, then whoever's best available at 10 or 11, we feel comfortable paying those guys slot and just taking what gets to us. And so then it sort of goes, goes back onto the rails. And then from talking to some agents this weekend, trying to figure out kind of where their guys make sense – we seem to uh, be hovering right around 20 is where that second tier of players uh, finishes. And then the third tier comes in and the third tier includes players that could go anywhere from 20 to 50, depending on how the dominoes fall or signability or whatever. And so that's when it just really opens up where we could have guys that are not even close to making our, you know, top 30 picks on our mock that end up going 20th, Um, which is obviously very problematic for us, but this is basically some version of how it happens in every draft. And we just sort of, I guess we diagnose about a week out that it looks like it's a tier of six players, then a tier of about 12 to 15 players, and then it's just a complete free-for-all after that, um, which is also in line with the, I've referenced before, some of the studies that I've done for teams in the past, where at the depth of a draft, a lot of people talk about, oh, this, draft, this draft's really deep. And it turns out from what we can tell that the depth of a draft is defined by like its top 15 to 25 players, and after that, every draft is essentially the same in terms of like how teams evaluate them at the time. Obviously... Some classes will have two Hall of Famers in the sixth round, and some of them have you know no one after the first round. But in terms of like um, what we can say on draft day, it's those top twenty to twenty five picks, which is we're saying it sounds like it's about twenty this year. Um, and some years maybe that's thirty, some years maybe it's fifteen. It seems like we're probably right around the average range in terms of depth, and I would say a little bit below average in terms of top end quality. Is that about how you read it? Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's about an average quality draft. Like Rutschman is the best. Uh, top of the class player in a little while uh and then the group beneath beneath him is about as deep as is typical um like if casey mize and joey bart were in this draft class where do they go like i'm pretty sure i would take both of them ahead of like vaughn and wit and that group but i'm i still think i would take adley yeah um, they'd, they'd be probably two and three or 
three and four. I think they just go in that mix with Witt and Rutschman, depending on which team is picking where. Um, so yeah, I think I think I'm a little I'm a little bit more optimistic about it. I'm there are individual players who um, like I am a little bit I deviate from personally than um, it sounds like some of the teams picking like in the top ten do. Um, we talk about like the college pitching has has been a point of consternation this entire process. Like we knew the college pitching in this group was bad and Graham Stinson got hurt and it got worse and and uh a few of the guys who were, you know, in our like second or third round uh mix have bubbled up into the first round picture like over the course of the spring. Um but I you know like Alec Manoa, Jackson Rutledge have warts, right? Like it's just not typical for guys that size to succeed uh, for long periods of time in the big leagues. Like their careers are just shorter. Nick Lodolo, I just like don't, you know, I don't think that fastball plays. I don't think there's um, breaking ball utility. Like I have concerns about Nick Lodolo too. So like that group, I'm down on that group, but like, I feel like everybody is. Uh, who do you think is, is at this stage, if you were to pick a couple individual players who might fall, and be good value the way uh, Brady Singer sort of did, and Nolan Gorman and Matthew Libertor did last year. Who do you think are candidates for that? I would say that one of those college arms, for whatever reason, whether it's Zach Thompson from Kentucky because of medical stuff, uh, or any of the pitchers I named for their individual reasons, uh, I think one of those guys wound up creeping like down into the 20s, but I'm kind of curious as to who you think might end up falling. Yeah, one of those pitchers is going to go like eight or ten spots lower than we have them ranked. And since yes. we have the highest right now at seven, uh, I think it might be him. It sounds like there's a pretty reasonable, maybe greater than 50% chance he gets to about 13th. Um, and Everyone assumes he's going seven. Like the people we talk to most mostly assume that he goes seven or somewhere close to it. And that's, e- that's but, an easy projection, but I don't think we've had enough smoke to make that as widespread as it's been. Uh, and I agree with you, but we don't have his name anywhere else behind that. You know what I mean? Like he would just be good value for somebody behind that. It's not as if we've we've got like hard rumors of you know like the Phillies liking him or something like that. Like we don't have anything. So at some point, someone's just going to look at the board and Lodolo or you know whatever college pitcher who's falling X is just going to be at the top, and they're going to be like, well, shit. We didn't think he'd get here, but he is. So, like, let's take the guy. And like, he will not have been attached to any rumors. It's just that's how this type of thing happens. Um, yeah, I think the way we have the board lined up, most guys will go within three or four picks of where they're ranked. Um, I think Brett Beatty has a chance to be the one that, because of the age stuff, that he'll just randomly be the Nolan Gorman. That there's not a good reason he just slides to like 19 or 20. I don't think he will, but I think there's a a greater chance than that. Uh, and I think uh, we, we've talked about the Zach Thompson medical stuff enough, and I think I've told you I might have said it on here, that some scouting directors feel like he'll be a good value because they're pricing in that people think he's going to get hurt, even though he hasn't had surgery before. It's just like, you know, the medical seems to portend a higher uh, risk than other guys. And other guys are definitely going to get hurt too, but they're not having it priced in. And this guy is a good competitor with a 3,000 RPM breaking ball. He's been up to 97 this spring. And there's, you know, I think he's going to end up being something like a Rich Hill type that like never throws 200 innings, is probably always hurt a little bit, sits around 90, 92, a little more than he hits 97 and sits in the mid-90s. Uh, but he's going to give you like quality innings that sort of fit with where the game's going in terms of take the quality rather than the quantity. And so I feel like if you can get that guy for, you know, below slot at 14 or 15, like he shouldn't be hard to, um, 
to find a home for. Whereas Jackson Rutledge, like I think, has the greatest uh, risk of these pitchers of being a guy that blows out. And it sounds like there's really no chance he slides because there's so many teams that are all over him. I think partly because of the Nate Pearson effect that once that guy goes, everyone's scared to pass on the next Nate Pearson, even though I think this guy is a um, an inferior prospect to what Nate Pearson was after he got in. Like that summer after he pitched in pro ball, and we could sort of map the trajectory from not so great early in the spring to good late to throw in 101 in a pre-draft workout to then throwing strikes in pro ball. That guy at the end of the summer is superior to Jackson Rutledge, and people are acting like they're the same guy. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably true. Um I guess the next group that where someone will fall and then be unsignable is the high school pitching. Like that is always then, you know, the high school pitching where it's signable kind of peters out in the early part of the second round in most cases, Um, you know, just because where slot is there. Uh, So I don't know. Who do you think who from who from the group of high school pitchers is least likely to sign aside from, let's say, Jack Leiter? Yeah, Jack Leiter is number one with a bullet. I'd probably set his odds of going to school at 75%, probably higher than that. Um, and I'd say right, because the money's, the money's high, and apparently there's just like a list of teams that are acceptable, and it's small. And also, if you had zero interest in signing and wanted to communicate that without actually saying, I have no interest in signing, you'd do something close to what he's doing right now. So some people just think it's at 0%. Um, but obviously, we don't... We don't know what the family is saying internally, so we'll set it at you know something low. But it, yeah, it's definitely if it's double digits, it's a low double digits. I would say Matt Allen is number two. Um, he has uh, what is deemed to be a tough um, negotiator as an advisor, <laughs> if that's a way that we can say it. Um, and he has bonus demands of it sounds like four million dollars, which is I'd say roughly in line with his talent. Uh, but because he is a high octane stuff, not an especially great athlete potentially below average command. I'd say most teams would project uh, 40, 45 command for him. Uh, he sort of fits the uh, prototypical, like, possible bust uh, high school pitcher archetype. Um, and so there's going to be inherently fewer teams that want to take a chance on a high school righty, even fewer that want to take a chance on a high school righty with potentially below average command, and even fewer that want to do that at a prescriptive high price with a guy that might be tough to negotiate with. And so I think he's put himself in a corner where I think he'll sign... But I'd say if, you know, Leiter has a 15% chance of signing, uh, I would say that uh, Matt Allen is maybe 60, which still is like a pretty good chance he ends up going to Florida. Do you think the Diamondbacks have like a true financial trump card? Do you think that if if they, like that they could realistically have anybody that they wanted? Like if they called Jack Leiter and said $5 million, do you think that Leiter would sign? Yeah, I think he would have I mean, because, well, because then at some point, good. If, if he's equally, if Jack Leiter is equally interested in playing pro ball or going to college, it's just about, you know, if you want to overwhelm me with money, then sure, that maybe that's a better option. But if you're not, then I'll go to college and maybe it'll overwhelm me then. Like, he can't reasonably get better than $5 million out of college. So at some point, I think there is a number. I just think it might be so high that nobody actually wants to right. pay it. And I think outside I guess... of those top six players, I think the D-backs could probably get almost anybody down there. Uh, with with you know some reasonable chance, obviously there's going to whoever seven eight nine decide they want under slot. I guess Arizona could offer more than that, but if they're college players, then you still have to get seven or eight teams to just you know not blink, uh, which is often hard to do these days. But yeah, they can they can get probably outside of ten players, almost anybody to their picks. If we're looking at last year's group of high school pitching that didn't sign, 
uh, Kumar Rocker's stuff was down late, and he had a strong commitment to Vanderbilt. His number was what was between four and five. Yes. Uh, Mike Vassell, the UVA righty, was hurt for some of the spring, came back just before the draft. Stuff looked good. Um, but there was probably, because of the injury, less comfort for teams, uh, fewer looks. Inherently, there's a medical issue. And then also there was a strong commitment to Virginia. So he went to school. Uh, have no idea what the number was there. They they kind of, they basically pulled out of the draft, right? I don't think there ever was a quoted number. I don't think anyone even yeah. knew what it what it could be because obviously they didn't have an opportunity to. It was a family. I think that was a family. The like, dad was the advisor. Yeah. Right. Um, and then Gunnar Hogland was Pittsburgh's sandwich rounder who like didn't sign. Um, and that was like so a that, dispute in negotiations uh, right. about some things that. Yeah, but they had a dispute about after he got picked. That wasn't a thing that we saw as unlikely to happen. So if we're looking at the guys who sort of fit that, any of those molds, like we don't know where and, the, and, the negotiation breakdowns would occur. And Cole Wilcox, so, who was 2020 eligible, or oh, you're right. he also was a, it sounds like, three and a half, if not four million, similar to Kumar Rocker. And that was like, um, the delivery was a little bit atypical, which probably took some teams off. Some teams thought uh, the fastball was a little too hittable, which I didn't really have as much of a concern, but I see what they're talking about. And I also just think not everyone was on him soon enough to be that like level of financial commitment comfortable. Yeah, he came on late. So if you if you weren't scouting him the whole spring aggressively when he came on, you weren't ready to make a, a call at that level. So who's like that then in this year's group? So Lighter's obviously the top one. Priester came on late, uh, throwing harder this spring, and obviously at Begin Illinois this spring started later. Um, right. But everybody was on him, and everyone knew that this guy. I think we had him rated somewhere in the 40s or 50s entering the spring, and we started hearing just before his season started that he's hitting 95, 96, which he didn't over the summer. And so I think everyone saw that trajectory coming. That it's like, oh, it's it's a second round guy that could become a first rounder, and then after a couple starts, it was okay, he's a first rounder. So I don't think, when I don't is think the, that took anyone by surprise. When is the last time you went in to see Espino? Uh, I want to say it was about six weeks ago, and he was. And it, where was the fastball? It was two to five, touched maybe a six or seven, but it was pretty much two to five the whole start. So that's it's still good, but it's not four to seven, touch a nine where he was last summer. So like it's down. And his first start of the, I think his first two starts of the year, he was that ninety six to hundred. And scouts pointed out that those two starts were both on long rest, and then the starts I saw and the ones around it were all on a week or slightly less rest. And so that's sort of the theory. And if he was six four one eighty and that was happening, there'd be less concern. But he is what is he six six foot two ten? Like he's sort of a maxed out guy. Where yes, he's young and you know some sort of added maturity and strength may come, but he's not sort of projectable in a way that you can expect these things to change dramatically. I think the um, the next group. Of names unlikely to sign are like uh, Matthew Thompson, uh, Andrew Dalquist. Like Thompson, because the stock is down compared to last summer, Dalquist, I hear it's like the ask is close like to two. Million. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you're, yeah, you're basically getting to the guys yeah. now where they want over a million dollars, and it's and then the ones that are closer to two, it's more of an issue. And then when you go down another tier to like Brandon Sprout, who we have uh, as like a low 40, sounds like his number is going to be like. One three one five, and he's in a range where most teams would value him like a million or just below. Um, so that could get to the point where somebody might want to pay him, but they just sort of run out of money before they get to him. And then the other thing we pointed out is there's a there's a whole mess of Vanderbilt commits that if there's a if there's a top right. ten of guys that might reasonably get to campus, like they have about half of them, which is pretty good recruiting. 
So teams are all, for the most part, in meetings right now. Uh, and so it's harder to get like team personnel on the phone talking at this time of the week. Uh, and it's something that like we'll have a better chance of doing over the weekend, which is why like the, the next mock will come out on Monday. And I would also say that from talking to uh, advisors, agents, representatives, however we want to refer to them, um, that they have they have sort of outlined scenarios from past years to me when I say, all right, if this team, like if Cincinnati, it sounds like they want to go under slot. If they want your guy for under slot, when are you going to hear from them? And they're like, well, from like past situations like this, you'll get like an early call to gauge your interest just because, you know, we like the player and we want to know what the number is, you know, a week or two out. And you'll get a check-in the week before just making sure that that's still accurate. And then they'll go into their meetings, and then over the weekend they'll probably make a decision where it's like, all right, it's down to these two guys based on the price. Or if it's this price, it's this guy. And then my question was, all right, when does the offer come? Because my thought was just inherently, all right, over the weekend, maybe they'll come to you and be like, hey, if we can cut 1.5, we'll take you with our pick. And they go, oh, no, it's way later than that. And I'm like, how late? And they go, if it's the seventh pick, uh, maybe right when the draft starts they call you. Because the last thing they want to do is give you a number, and then you say, all right, let me get back to you in 20 minutes. And Or if you do it on a Saturday, you've got two days to go find a better number somewhere. And if like maybe the Diamondbacks are picking before between where you think you're going to go and the Reds, maybe the Diamondbacks will top that number, and then you're going to go tell the Reds, I'm not signable there. And they don't want that. They want you to say yes or no very quickly and feel a little boxed in. And so guys are telling me if it's like the seventh pick, maybe they call you when the draft starts. If it's like the D-backs at the 16th pick, they'll wait until seven guys are off the board and then call you. And they don't want you to have the options to go find someone else. And that's why you have to know your market really well because you've got to be able to have that answer like, you know, within five or ten minutes or they're going to move on because, like, they need an answer too. So a lot of these guys, like, the teams might have some idea of who they're going to get the morning of the draft, but even they don't know for sure who they're going to get until often after the draft has started, which obviously nobody really cares about us doing a mock after five picks have happened. Uh, do you want to move on and talk? Do you want to talk about farm system rankings, or do you just want to stay on draft stuff? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about farm system rankings because I think that uh, will be informed, uh, obviously, a good bit by who they get in the draft. And obviously, Arizona would be a big uh, turning point for that, as they have, I believe, the okay, they have the second most actually. I guess the Orioles are slightly ahead of them because the expected value no. of Adley is so. Oh, high. the exp- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we, we tweak the pick values a bit where we it's informed a bit by who the players are this year. So it's not just picking the value of a generic number one, a generic number two. It is scaled a bit based on who's on the board and what kind of future value we have on them. Uh, right, yeah. So the the farm system rankings are on the uh, – if you go to fangraphs.com slash prospects and just go down to like the all prospects content, you'll have access to like the pre-draft farm system rankings – uh, and yeah, I mean, I guess the, the interesting thing, we talked about this the other day is like, okay, the Red Sox are at the very bottom. Um, we've got only $56 you know, million, uh, the farm system is valued at that. And so like what group of draft, like there are a couple drafts, you know, the Braves, Tigers, Rangers, Padres, White Sox, uh, draft classes that are valued at that same amount. So like, would you trade, would you, tra- if you're the Boston Red Sox, would you trade your, uh, the players on the prospect list for the Boston Red Sox to the, to the White Sox for their entire, uh, slate of draft picks? Like, how do you, how do you feel about that? In, in general, I would say yes. Uh, because in the, I guess in this scenario, I would be the, you know, the new GM of the team and, all things being equal, you would imagine that the type of player that is the 
worthwhile prospects in your system. Of your top 10, there's going to be a couple of them where you're like, well, that's not the kind of player I would pick if I could just pick a player from any team. And so the ability to essentially make those prospects liquid in a way that you can turn that into the version of a player you would want. Because, uh, I mean, in, in the universe where you can trade them, you could then have the draft picks and trade those draft picks for, you know, a big league player that you want or you know, international draft money when you need it. Like, it basically is, is turning something that is traditionally illiquid or not completely liquid um, into something that is, because obviously a draft pick is sort of worth similar amounts to every team, I guess, depending on your board. Um, the hangups for me would be, one, if I'm the Red Sox and I'm trying to compete, and a lot of this value is in AA and AAA, and so I can use it in the short term and in the draft, like unless I'm taking a very small universe of players, it's not usable in the short term. Um, so that would be like one consideration that for the Red Sox specifically would be a negative. The other thing would be, you know, if we're thinking like really realistically, if I have it prepared as though I'm going to have like 30 picks in the top 10 rounds, then I'm not super confident that I'm going to get the most out of those picks. And so obviously like this late in the process, you wouldn't oh, do it. Right. If I knew it sure. a year in advance and I could do what, what we talked about with the Diamondbacks are doing that, like everyone that they employ is going to see draft prospects and they've, you know, been able to think about how they want to approach this for a long time. Um, then, you know, then, then if you can reconcile those two things, so if it's like a non-competitive team and you're assuming that you have like the information you need, then I probably would do that if it was close. Um, I would do it. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, the farm system rankings, they'll be – at some point, they'll be dynamic. And when, you know, someone's elbow blows out and their future value changes and they get, like, moved down, then the team's farm system number will also change in real time on the board. Um, and this is, like, a start of how some of this stuff will be pieced together to the point where we can like put, you know, value on asset that non-player assets basically and sort of that's that's the only reason really to boil things down to the, to uh, money is cuz it's like one common denominator that we can use to compare apples to oranges as far as like players and draft picks and international slots and all that stuff. And eventually I'd like to be able to put a value on how good we think a team's player development group is and say, oh, here's like a little multiplier. Like you can add an extra 10% if you're projecting what this will be next year because we think that they will improve prospects more quickly than this other team will improve their prospects, which is probably another another value you can use if you're trying to project what the team system will be next year, but that's a little harder to wrap your arms around. And that sounds super dope. <laughs> uh, and, and going on to one other thing that we're going to be adding to the board eventually, uh, which I think is previewed a bit in this uh, regional uh, preview, where we basically yeah. take all the players off of all three years of the board and line them up and say, hey, this, uh, you know, the Athens regional, Florida State, Georgia, Florida Atlantic, here's all the guys they have on the board. If you're watching a game, here's your sort of guide. Um, we're going to add a version of this to the board where you can uh, look at like a, I guess we call it an inventory of every school, and so not only will you have all of the current players of that team, so all of the 2019, 2020, and 2021 prospects that are playing for Georgia, you'll also have a list of all their commits on all three of those lists, and so you can just sort of see, like, oh, Georgia you know, looks here, like they're a little behind LSU in terms of now talent, but they have a lot of 2021 talent that could you know, progress, and their recruiting class is much better. Um, so if you're a big college baseball fan, that would give you the sort of prospecty. Um, or I guess pro prospect uh, angle to watching college baseball that I found in general, like, you know, college baseball coverage, a lot of good college baseball coverage on the internet. Most of it is geared toward who won this game, who should be seated where, who's going to win the college world series, which is great. There's not a lot of, here's every good pro prospect on this team, freshman, sophomore, or junior. So we'd like to sort of fill that role if we can. It's in some places, but it's, yeah, it's not hard as comprehensive to... as I would like it. Maybe I'm, a, uh, I am a weirdo, but. Well, yeah, you and I are fucked up. Um, yeah, the, the regionals are fun. Like, uh, I don't like how close the draft is to regionals 
uh, this year just because it means that you and I really aren't going to one. Although, like, you could drive, you know, how far is the Atlanta Regional from your house? Atlanta, uh, the Georgia Tech's probably 15 minutes, and Georgia's about an hour. <gasps> yes, <dude. laughs> I'll, I'll probably go to Athens to watch Emerson Hancock pitch whenever that is. I think it'll be tomorrow. And then I'll probably go to one game when Tanner Burns pitches. Yeah. Those will probably be the two I do. Burns is today. Oh, is he today? He's today. Are you sure? I watched the beginning of that game. He wasn't pitching. For real? I thought it was on... I was on... started for Auburn. Uh, well, then someone's website lied. Um, good job. <laughs> good job, website. Good job. Uh, yeah, like, it's hard It's hard to find the pitching probables for college games, even for these regionals. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, the most reliable thing is when they tweet out the lineup 20 minutes before the game starts. Right. Yeah, I know. Um so yeah, the but the regionals are great. Like everyone should be watching those. It's a lot of fun, and you get to see. You know, it's it's beneficial if you're trying to cram for the draft on Monday to turn on, uh, like the you know the Cal regional or whatever the one that's in. It doesn't matter. Like all of them are loaded with talent for the most part. So go and, check it out. And I also again we're we're weirdos, but I like the idea of uh, maybe the, you know the first game for a number one seed they'll throw their third or fourth best starter against the fourth. Oh seed. yeah. And there's a 2021, you know, lefty that we have as a 35 plus, and you can watch that guy and be like, okay, if that guy was thrown into the minor leagues for my team, he would be rated. And then you pull up your team's list, be like, all right, he'd be in the 30 to 35 range, so he's comparable to this, you know, 19 year old lefty that my team has in rookie ball. Like, I like being able to compare those two and take two completely different levels and sort of styles of play and sort of the perception of him is like, oh, like a young contributor for Arkansas, whereas if he was on the Orioles, it would be like, oh, that's an intriguing 19-year-old we won't hear much about for the next two years. Like, I like being able to compare those things in the same way that using the monetary value of, like, an asset value allows us to compare all these other different things uh, across across the one level playing field. Right, I, I think... I feel like that's, like, an ability for us to translate that sort of stuff that the common fan would have a little trouble trying to translate those things. Yeah, I love doing an extended game at 10 30 a.m and then a college game at night like in the same day because the players are basically the same age group oh uh, yeah. spencer torkelson just went deep he'll do that he yep. will do that <laughs> he is liable to do that sometimes um he's starting like the the body comps you know like the the halo effect of discussion surrounding torkelson has set in because a lot of the teams picking in the top 10 or around there were in to see hunter bishop during the spring and a lot of those teams are still bad at the big league level this year and will be in play for uh, Torkelson next year. Um, so it's like, you know, the Marlins and stuff, like Jeter and Posada and Michael Hill were in to see uh, Bishop and sat down the first baseline watching a left-handed hitter from the closed side. Uh, so, like, they had a better look at Torkelson that whole game. Um, but, yeah, like, Torque, Torque's really good, and um, I hope ASU does well because I'd like – him to to be you know shown on a bigger stage like no offense to the Pac-12 network and stuff but like the SEC and ESPN app is like where it's at and it's where most people are watching their college baseball. What uh, how would you compare him to Vaughn just for for people that are reading a lot of Andrew Vaughn stuff and have an idea of what kind of player he is and just sort of seeing the stats of Torkelson and he's we have him ranked high with the same future value if you threw him into this draft how close do you think they would go? Pretty close. I feel. Uh, would he, would he be in those top six hitters everyone's talking about? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Where, where where would you take him if you're like if you're picking fifth and you get choice between those two? Oh, I still th- I would take Vaughn. I think 
it, it would be very close. I don't think either of them can do anything else. Like the the Vaughn taking grounders at third stuff is. I mean, I guess I wasn't there to see it. I'd be interested to see it, but I doubt. Just having watched him do everything else, like I doubt that went well. You think um, he's about Brett Wallace level at third base? If you had to guess. Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, Torkelson's stronger. It's like a bigger, more traditional big league body like it's like he's built like luke voigt you know like he's a he's a beast um and like the hitters timing and all that stuff that's all there too it's just vaughn's approach is so refined um and you know if we're looking at we're looking at these two guys the ceilings are pretty comparable right like it's not we're probably not looking at albert pools or anything like that neither one of these guys would seem to be like a historic type of talent not that pools was like a well-regarded draft prospect but you understand what i mean yeah, would you say in broad terms the vaughn is like a six hit six power and torkelson's like a five hit seven power yeah like yeah and then and you know maybe might might be a hair better defender and athlete but not that much better yeah, I, I think that they're they're a wash on that end. Like, they're really neither of them is especially very good. If you're um, talking about sort of a bat only guy, you probably like slightly lean to the one that has the higher the higher head grade, just because you got a little more certainty that guy's right. That's around. there's right. There's perceived certainty in that field hit that I I feel more comfortable about. Yeah. Probably more walks. Yeah, I could I, I could see him being a little safer, and you'd have to you'd have to really like these sort of secondary stuff other than the bat and power that Torkelson offers to take him. That was I also agree. my vibe, having barely seen Torkelson this spring. Yeah, he's but he's very very good. the The group that ASU has for next year is good. Torque, Trevor Halver, and Alika Williams are all are all very solid. Yes, and if you are interested, because you are if you're a, a huge draft fan that feels like you've already gotten uh, uh, a lot and you're full of all this draft stuff, and you just hear us talking in circles around the same guys over and over, uh, go to the 2020 board. You can get an idea of especially looking at these uh, regionals. Like I, I think we pointed out that the uh, Starkville Regional has like an unusual amount of 2020 talent, uh, in, I guess including JTN who walked off the mound today with what appeared to be an arm injury. Um, yeah, scary. But Miami is is there and they are loaded in 2020 talent. Basically, have no eligible talent for like the top five rounds, but they got four or five yep. guys for next year that are of that quality. Um, so it's a chance to sort of get a little bit ahead in that regard. 2021 is probably too early because those guys, a lot of times, the guys that will be good prospects are at small schools that we haven't identified yet or like aren't even really playing regularly yet at the big schools. So for that one, that's only for the real weirdos like me and Eric. Um, so moving on to the next thing from draft week would be the uh, the swing changers thing that uh, I guess was on my byline, but you obviously contributed to it as well because we, uh, we kind of talked through that thing for, what, the last week or two after after I heard from a scout that this, that this um, signable in the mid to low six-figure hitter thing was real – and then A, trying to verify that this is what everyone else is seeing, and then B, trying to like talk through um, the various sort of reasons this may be happening and all the different elements uh, that could be leading to it. What is your sort of impression of this? Because you can obviously read the article if you want to. Uh, what is your sort mm. of impression of that whole situation? And where do, where do you think that will be headed in future years? Well, I think player dev, player dev across baseball in general is like changing pretty quickly. Uh, I think there are pockets of college baseball where the player development is superior to some of the big league programs, but I think the ones that have that have been behind have really begun to realize that they're behind uh, and are starting to make changes. So I think that, that some of that gap is going to close, and then at that point we're back to the problem of incentive that we've had uh, in college baseball compared to pro ball as far as development is concerned for like a long time now. 
and it's stuff like it's stuff that's most evident in pitch counts, right? Like if your pitcher's throwing 120, 130 uh, bullets in a start, like that's probably bad for the kid's arm, and it's not a thing that would happen if he were in high A. Uh, and we there have been instances over the last several years where you know pitchers have gotten hurt because of this, and it is really just because uh, colleges have incentive to win now. They are going to instruct and develop players and use players in ways that enable the program to win. Uh, and there are times when that conflicts with what is best for their long-term development. We also have to realize that that gap is probably bigger than we, uh, the consumers of pro baseball, especially Major League Baseball. There's the, there's a gap uh, in talent that creates a, a gap in the way the game is actually played on the field. Like the, the uh, BABIP in college is not 300 forever. You know what I mean? Like it is defenses are worse. Like players are worse. The talent is diluted. It makes the way teams go about playing uh, different. You know, like a bunt is not as given an out in college baseball as it is at like in major league baseball. So like we have to look at that stuff differently. Um, and, so, so yeah, I think there some of the SEC schools, the schools with big budgets who can uh, afford all of this technology, who can have staffs, who are well-versed in it, who can communicate it to the kids in the right way. Um, I think that that's spreading to the big schools. I think it's pervasive throughout pro ball now. And so uh, soon it'll just be a wash um, before, you know, the next – "Quote unquote big thing comes along that that colleges might hop out in front of pro teams on, but uh, but until that time, I think that yes, you're correct. Um, it is probably better for kids to, to go into pro ball right away for the development, even though in recent years, uh, I don't think that has always been the case at some of these programs. Yeah, and also if the kid you know grew up a huge fan of Alabama baseball and wants to go to Alabama and wants to win as many games as he can and puts a lot of value on that and the campus experience, then that's probably better for him. And if your number one priority is not get to the big leagues with the highest certainty and as quickly as possible, uh, or your family's already sort of well off, and so you know scratching out a couple extra dollars here or there a little bit sooner isn't that big of a deal. Like it's not like this is a bad option for that kid. It's just I think most kids, uh, or increasingly, um, are looking sort of similar to, the, to a lot of the basketball players where they're going to college for one year. They don't really care what college they're at. They don't really care how much that guy's going to develop them because they're just going to go to the to, um, to the NBA in a year anyway. And so they can't really do much uh, to them, good or bad. Um, and so they're focused more, you know, sometimes negatively on themselves. Uh, but in one way, if you have a bunch of really good players, you're probably going to win more games. And you could say, well, what if they're selfish or what if they're self-involved? Like, I don't like, if you're an old school guy, I don't like that, you know, kids are passing up the college experience and getting all of that sort of seasoning and maturity on all levels because they're more interested in hitting free agency earlier. It's like, all right, well, if, if MLB made it easier to have a big free agent contract after you signed out of college, then maybe they wouldn't be doing that. Like, this, there are other forces that are for, that are causing this to happen, which is why I found it interesting and probably the reason we need to talk through this for a couple of weeks and for me to take almost 2,000 words to lay it all out because there's a lot of different things pushing this uh, to where it is currently. And it sort of starts with TrackMan. It goes to incentives. It goes to the money in the SEC and ACC. It goes to the ADs making decisions off of wins and losses. It goes to free agency getting pushed back to being, you know, Torkelson. There were some rumors after his freshman year he'd go to a JC so that he could get there a year earlier. Like there's a lot of these things are all pushing in one direction and this is sort of where we landed and I think it'll be interesting to see how how quickly 
big league uh, teams that are not on sort of the cutting edge or the progressive half of baseball get there because sort of kids are asking them to be and how quickly the colleges that are not um, often largely not um, developing kids in a way that um, belies their long-term pro potential will start doing things like that because it'll get them better talent and will get them better recruits and they get, they'll get an edge to where if they end up, um, you know, maybe a guy isn't good for one year and then is for two years and maybe you get a bunch of recruits that are going to go pro, but a couple of them are really excited about what, you know, you can do for them as the staff at Vanderbilt. Like, I think it ends up coming out as a net positive if you take that approach of sort of being honest and doing what's best by the kid instead of where we are currently where you get a lot of this guy's going to throw 120 pitches and then on three days rest, he's going to come in to close out the regional. And isn't that great for the school and great for the program and, you know, great for this kid's stick-to-itiveness. And it's really terrible for the kid, but they just sort of trick them into thinking it's that way. And there's this like whole vortex where there's just like a version of twisting the truth and sort of lying to the kids, which is sort of inherent in the NCAA at some level of not paying them. But it, like, You could argue works. it's inherent in our culture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Corporate America, if they can make some money, they'll probably lie to you too. Like, wake up, sheeple. Yeah, like we all – I'm not going to start talking about how much we all work. But like um, – but yeah, like there is there is something uh, emotional about, you know, Kevin Abel. Like maybe Kevin Abel would not trade what he did in last year's college World, World Series for anything. Carson was um, in Florida. He ended up trading about $4 million to have a good college World Series as a freshman. So, yeah, like it is – but some of the kids, yeah, like what's – Abel's uh, draft stock definitely – you know, he's he had Tommy John this year. So, like uh, who know, you know? there's no way of truly knowing how any of this stuff happens and, you know, what is responsible for it. But, like it is not good that he threw as many pitches as he did last last summer. And, and to be clear, the, the big league teams are obviously not, you know, angels in this situation. They're just properly incentivized that they want you to Correct. get to the big leagues and be as good as possible. And so the, the, you know, all of the nudges and market forces are making them do what's best for the kid in, in large. Mostly. Numbers. Yeah. Mostly, and, and but they don't want to pay as, them though. Yeah. As far, <laughs> yeah. As far as development and how they're making the kid better, they're doing everything right in that area or they're pushed to do it right in that area. And there's plenty of other things we've talked about as far as like labor issues where they aren't doing what's right for the kid because they're still a business that's incentivized to save money. And so they'll do what you sort of force them to do. And so that's why at the end of the article I sort of said, well, is this going to be eventually a revolution that is pushed by the prospects to get both the colleges and the pro organizations to go even further to what's best for the kid? Because now they are sort of, you know, their own union, like negotiating on their own behalf now that their eyes are open to like what's going on and what's best for them because the internet has made it much easier uh, to keep track of these things, which I don't think is like, that's not where I thought this article would end when we first conceived of it two weeks ago, but that's kind of where it ended up. Yeah, the anytime the collegiate athletes, uh, there's discussion of unionization, which I think the last time it happened was with the Northwestern football team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's very interesting, and I do hope at some point that it comes to fruition. Um, it'll be messy, but it's already like we we need a little bit of change, I think, on this end. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Uh, to watch like the way the different programs operate because they're not all making money. It's not as if ASU has a packed house at Phoenix Muni every Friday. Um, it's pretty bland there, you know. So, um, but you know the team was good this year. So I don't know. Um, Sounds like they'll be but, good next year. Uh, we'll see what happens with the pitching, but yeah, I think that they they'll probably be about as good next year as they were this this year. Oh, they get a they got a two seed. 
They were a two seed, yeah. They were they won their first twenty one games of the year and then were about five hundred in the pack and lost like seven of their last nine series of the year, I wanna say. Uh, like most of the like they dropped two of three to Stanford and stuff and Which UCLA is and the pitching depth kind of starts to shine. I guess yeah. I mean it's really yeah. I mean we could talk about ASU all day, but um, but yeah, I think there's like got to be value and stability because I've been talking about this with some of the area scouts here and Tracy Smith's job was sort of on the line entering this season, and then the team went out and was much better this year than they were the last two years. But there's still clear problems. Like there's there would seem to be have been like clubhouse issues uh, that depleted depth. Like they only had 25 or so kids on the roster this year because a lot of them left for various reasons, um, junior colleges and other D1 schools and stuff. Um, and so like that was just sort of like it's never really been explicitly discussed. But like there seemed to be issues that led to sort of an exodus of some of the depth, uh, and so like that was an issue. Um, but they have been better this year, and I think there's value and stability too. I think just him getting Smith getting dialed in, like where is the sweet spot to recruit and get kids here, uh, as opposed to like I've said ad nauseum that first year where like just no one other than Bishop, they all signed, um, and then all of a sudden like that first huge recruiting class. Uh, and I guess Carter Aldretti has been n- not not as good as some people hoped he would be. Um, but, like, that first recruiting class just didn't come in. And so when the last wave of talent before he got here left, Woodman C. Lillick, Ryan Kellogg, uh, Ryan Burr, uh, there was nothing. Like, the cupboard was bare. And so they were just they've just been bad for two years. And now it's, like, starting to get better again. So I think that he'll stick around. Um I just I do think that to some degree there's like value and stability, but they need to start doing some of like they're just behind. There was a year they didn't have a pitching coach, and I'm not sure that they're implementing some of the some all of the things they could be. I think given the athletic department's budget at Arizona State, which is pretty big. Uh, one more college baseball uh, piece that we've mentioned a few times, but I wanted to sort of put a finer point on is uh, Vanderbilt's position as far as being the personnel leader in college baseball. So if you go to the um, regional preview, you can scroll down a little bit. I think it's the third one. Um, Vanderbilt has 15 players that are currently on the board right now. Yeah. Um, they're going to lose five. Well, five of them are 2019 prospects. Uh, one of them is a senior. Presumably one of them might come back. Um, and of those five, I think four of the five, the ones other than J.J. Bleday, are 35 pluses or lower. So they're guys that would be tail end of a pro list or off the list. It's, so that's sort of the, the veteran depth types. So Blade is like the real prospect they're losing this year. They'll have 10 more players that are returning, and possibly an 11th if one of those um, juniors comes back. And then of their commits this year, they have eight that are on the board for this year's draft. There's a possibility they get all eight of them, but it sounds like there's like a minimum of five, and at least three or four of those would be 40s or 45s. And so they'd essentially be losing one 40 or better prospect, possibly adding three to five more. And that would sort of put them in position next year as the sort of long-term pro potential of everyone on the roster being 15, maybe 17 of their 27 scholarship players. <laughs> Having like real top five to six round pro potential, which yeah. is completely ridiculous. 
And I'm sure that's yeah. happened before, but like I remember there's been some Florida teams where yeah, some that's they lose say. all their prospects, they have a huge freshman class come in, and then three years later they have another crazy draft class, and they have had sort of the depth where the entire starting lineup, uh, the top seven pitchers are all basically easy pro guys that will go in the top ten rounds. So it seems like every, I don't know, three to five years there will be a team that approaches this level, but it's possible that Vanderbilt might have the best sort of blue chip top two rounds among the teams that have had half of their scholarship players be, you know, top 10 round caliber players. Yep. Um, it's pretty incredible. And it is like a weird confluence of different stuff has led us here. There is certainly, you know, Jack Leiter has signability questions because he's, he comes from a family that's very well off and uh, so they can afford to, to do that and like send the kid to school. They're not giving up a multi-million dollars right now like they're they're doing fine his teammate at del barton high school new jersey anthony volpe sort of the same thing it sounds like um spencer jones a two-way player in southern california got hurt velo did not tick up uh the way people hoped it would because of his frame like it's a big six seven projectable frame he was 88 92 last summer came out this spring was about the same um but it's like a lefty it's an athletic lefty power batter who's a huge target at first base who has below velocity but can really spin a curveball. So, like, he's an interesting two-way prospect. Um, and then he got hurt and I think it was a fractured uh, forearm. I think it's a elbow, I want to say. It's something like Okay. Him. So, yeah, and so he's so he may not be signable now. Then there's Trey Fletcher, the outfielder from Maine, who reclassified late. It was a particularly rainy spring in the Northeast, and so he wasn't well scouted because it was the middle of the spring when he reclassified. It was and so not past the deadline, but he got sort of an exception. So like, exa- yeah, guys that didn't even—he was at some of the events in the summer, and scouts saw them, but they were not bearing down, and they didn't know they needed to go see him in the spring until these rumors popped up, like in the middle of the spring. And he's in Maine, and it's raining, and he's not facing Velo, so it's—and it sounds like he's going to have like a pretty decent price in Vanderbilt, as um, you know very motivated to have him on campus. Uh, it sounds like he's got a decent number, so it sounds like he's got a pretty good chance to get there. Uh, and then who else am I missing? I've, oh, McKenzie, Kendall. the brother. Yeah. McKenzie didn't have a great spring, so he'll probably, uh, he'll probably either go to a junior college or Vanderbilt if I had to guess. Uh, you got Blaine McIntosh, uh, who's in Tennessee, is a good athlete that can run, that could develop into somebody in the next couple of years. Carter Young, who you saw the spring in Washington. Sounds yeah, like switch hitting, number. shortstop. Switch hitting shortstop with a little bit of power plus defensive shortstop. Uh, and then Kendall Williams is like a lean 6'6 righty big, with arm big strength. extension into the mid-90s, three pitches, some field of pitch. Violent, violent delivery. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, I've got differing reports on his signability. Uh, it sounds like he'll probably get offered sort of late second, early third kind of money. It's not clear if he would sign for that or not. Um, but he also has like a pretty decent, like they all have what, at least a 30% shot of going to school. Um, so it could be, it could be a historic group of talent, which I would imagine after the signing deadline, we might do an article and just put it all together. Uh, cause there's a couple guys that aren't on the board that could be on the board of Vanderbilt too, that they're just so deep. They didn't have a chance to play. Brett Hanson is on a Mormon mission right now. Uh, so if he gets on the mound and starts throwing, he might, you know, shoot up and be at a different, um, yeah. future value once he comes back. And then one of the top high school players for 2020 is Vanderbilt commit as well. Oh, yeah, because that's – I mean, I don't think it's a – there's obviously some – like you're saying, there's many factors that sort of lead to this uh, recruiting prowess. Um, but it's not a coincidence that they're seen as, like, the most progressive, most well-run organization uh, or program in baseball, and they consistently get the best recruits. Like, it helps that they're a private institution that can get you more scholarship money, maybe better than some public institutions can. 
and that's a very good academic uh, situation. So a lot of well-off families just would rather go there, and they happen also have a good baseball team. Um, so there's other things that are pointing to it, but if they were not well-run, they wouldn't be having this sort of talent. So I guess kudos to Tim Corbin for, uh, for handling that in such a way. Um, the last parts of draft week will be starting on Monday, and it will be, before the draft starts, uh, two versions of a mock draft. And then after the draft, a bunch of sort of review elements. And then the last part will be the odds and ends thing, which uh, we did last year, which is basically like a quick rundown of here's what we're hearing about, you know, signability. Maybe this guy that went in the third round is actually, you know, going to get double slot or something like that. Here's the colleges that got hit particularly hard or made out pretty well. Here's a quick look ahead to 2020. Um, and just sort of like, new, you know, news and notes and rumors and things like that have been kicking around um, after the draft has ended. Um do you have any thoughts, I guess, on the mock draft? It's the only the only thing that is technically before the draft we even talked about yet. The last one, uh, any specific um, challenges that you've anticipated in the latest mocks? I know last year we had more picks correct in our Monday morning one than our Monday night one, which which I think we'll be very aware of this year. Yeah, I think that you and I will be wary of making late changes uh, based on stuff that I you know is smoke screening right before the final bell. Because we're just in all, we're, I think we're in a fervor, you know, as the thing builds up, um, and and have a tendency to like, we don't have time to double check everything, and I think that that's teams correctly take advantage of that. Well, and I also think that if you have three late rumors that are all vague and point to one thing, uh, sometimes that can overpower what you've been hearing for two months when the two months should probably take precedent over the last three. It should. Um, so yeah, I'm like. I have a process that I, you know, like a the way I make calls in relationship to like the way the board and money and all that stuff is lined up. Like I have a process that I, it's a cycle. Like I, I start it and I finish it, and then we do a mock, and then, um, you know, I start it and and finish it again. Like I go through the same sort of cycle of uh, individual people at different levels of orgs and like at different parts of the draft and. Um, and yeah, uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that at some point this weekend for the last time, but I don't think it'll be challenging. I think um, the other stuff coming up is there will be we're start, we'll start updating the pro side of the board as players get drafted, uh, taking graduates off, changing injured players, that sort of thing, pop-up guys. Uh, so go to fangraphs.com slash prospects, or you can email us at prospects at fangraphs.com. Uh, We've never read emails on this podcast, but I suppose we could. Um, Some of them them weren't responses, but maybe not necessarily reading and (laughs) responding publicly. um, So, yeah. So that's uh, where you can find us and our stuff in the coming days, and we'll do a live chat Monday night during the draft. Yes, and we will will tentatively attempt to woge. We'll we'll see if we can. Last year we didn't try to, and it just started happening, and so we just kept doing it. And who knows? Maybe it won't be there this year, but I would imagine we'll do it a few times at least. And then, yeah, we have some uh, draft reviews. We'll do a review podcast where I think we're just going to go and spend, like, you know, two minutes or less on each team and give you an hour where with timestamps you can be like, oh, I care about these two teams or I care about my division or my specific team. You can get what you want, get in and out, and then we'll have enough sort of written words that if you if you prefer a, uh, a written rather than audio review, you can go there. Uh, we'll have our chats. Uh, my next Wednesday is next Friday. I feel like uh, once the next week is done uh, – we will both be ready for mental, if not physical, vacations, and we may both be taking both of those. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> yes. I will be taking a vacation, but not till after PG National. 
Yeah, and I I guess I don't have an early uh, an early summer thing to attend since the PDP has taken over for one of the early ones, and I guess right before the uh, the All Star break and futures game activities, I'll go see College Team USA, which I think they've only announced one of the players so far. So I, I've got an idea of who they're going to get. They tip, the last couple of years have made a concerted effort to get more of the top guys, and I think we probably have the most uh, updated comprehensive 2020 ranking. So you're probably pretty safe to go through the 2020 guys, and short of the guys that are pitchers that are going to get shut down for throwing too many innings, um, and obviously the high school guys because it's College Team USA, it's pretty much going to be 80% of like the top 30, I would imagine, or, or whatever it is. That's typically what they've done the last few years. And uh, a couple of those top guys, like Torkelson and Bailey. I think Bailey's the only one that's been announced. Torkelson was on the team last year. I would imagine he'll be on it again. I think, I think that that was announced as well. Yeah, Burns was last year. Cabrera was last year. Um, yeah, I, I would bet Austin Martin from Vanderbilt will be there. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll be strong, and they'll be playing some games against Cuba, which I hope they still have some players left because I feel bad that it seems like they're all out of players. I think uh, you'll get Yoelkis. You'll get Yoelkis Cespedes, yeah. I think. I, w- I would like to think he's there. Uh, but in the way that they are almost all out of players, I think we're all out of love. And we're so lost without you. Did you want me to finish it? Is that why you left a pause? Well, I think also even if I do it, it's just like it really hits home more if there's a pause. It's like people that were half paying attention like, leaned in like, why did they pause right there? Oh, yeah, see? Well, we'll have a karaoke all right. podcast, So long. All right, let's go. We'll do a lifestyle podcast and you and I will do a karaoke podcast. As we, oh, no. As we What's a lifestyle podcast? Is that a genre of podcasts? Yeah, it's like uh, it's like Goop. We just talk about like uh, ho- home remedies that have uh, no basis in fact, uh, how to decorate your house, uh, how to cook for guests. I feel like you'd be interested in 10% of that. Some of that stuff sounds good. Yeah, especially the food part. Once I have a kitchen, I think I will start posting things on Instagram of me making things in my kitchen. But currently, I have no kitchen, so you'll get none of it. Um, well, Eric, it's been almost an hour. Uh, thank you for your time. We will continue filling out the board. Keep an eye on that and look for our mock Monday morning. And hopefully we will not look silly when draft day comes and our rankings and mocks will not be hilariously wrong. Um, but thank you for listening. And we will talk to you middle of next week as we are reviewing the drafts. <laughs> <laughs>